Books is a podcast from the School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures at the University of Edinburgh that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Ellen, your host, a PhD student in French and Francophone studies, and this is our very first episode featuring the lovely Rachel Chung, who is a third-year PhD candidate in English Literature. This conversation stayed with me for a long time after we finished recording, and I think it feels that bit more poignant now in the current COVID-19 circumstances. Just a couple of points before we get into the episode. You will hear us mention an early interview that I did with Katie Hawthorne, um, which was recorded before Rachel came in to speak with me. We've decided to release Katie's episode a bit later down the line instead, just in case there's any confusion there. I also wanted to include a trigger warning. In this episode, we discuss representations of rape and sexual violence, as well as queer and trans erasure in the context of drag on multiple occasions. As always, discretion and self-care is advised. I think Rachel does a really excellent job of unpacking some very complicated issues in this episode. But please note that all views expressed are our own and not necessarily indicative of those of the school as a whole. Finally, on a more light-hearted note, there are also some fairly big spoilers for season two of Netflix's Sex Education. So if you're not caught up, I'd recommend you pause this right now and go and binge watch the whole thing because it's pretty great. Enjoy the episode and remember, when we move beyond the books, we might have a lot more in common than we initially think. Please be safe, all of you, and above all, be well. Thank you. Welcome to Beyond the Books. I'm here with Rachel Chung. Um, Rachel's a PhD candidate here in LLC um, and she studies sexual violence in Shakespeare as performed by casts of all women. Rachel's research focuses primarily on productions directed by Philidia Lloyd um, and she's working to combine the worlds of gender studies and the semiotics of theatre. Hello Rachel. So I know that you have actually come to this research from a science background and so you made a big leap from, maybe not a big leap, but a leap, um, from science to stage representations of sexual violence. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that and how you ended up here in LLC? Yes, I absolutely can. So my undergraduate degree is actually in applied math. Oh wow. Um, I thought I wanted to be an engineer. And then the next year, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, so I did engineering at my American university at the same time as a pre-med qualification, and then I did my master's in narrative medicine with the aim of going to medical school, but along the way, um, I was doing student theater the whole time, and Mm -hmm. it was really, really time-consuming, and I ended up working with the Shakespeare troupe Mm -hmm. and just fell in love with it. And so during my master's, I focused on Shakespeare and medicine, and I discovered that I could just do that for my career instead. So here I am. That's really, really cool. I mean, did you always see yourself doing, I mean, you said you applied for pre-med, right? I don't really know the American system, but I'm guessing like that's what you need to be able to do practical placements, clinicals and things like that. Yeah. So in the US, you do four years of undergraduate and then you apply to medical school and you do four years of medical school Okay. and then you do placements. So um, I never went to 
medical school, which would technically be grad school. Okay. So I have my, I did my undergrad, my master's, and now I'm, here I am. Okay. So a caveat for the non-American listeners yeah. about how it works. Um, so I guess like, I mean, my question was going to be, did you always see yourself doing academic research? But I mean, I guess you initially saw yourself doing medicine. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, I am. Um, Everyone in my family is a doctor, oh. and it's not that they didn't, they never pressured me to be a doctor, but it was all I knew, and they all have very happy, healthy lives, and mm. I was like, that's what I want. <laughs> but then I discovered that if I went to medical school, that's exactly the opposite of what yeah. I would get to have. Yeah, Reading and the humanities were a hobby, mm. and math was my career, mm. but my professors during my master's encouraged me to think about a career in the humanities. Um not because I was like particularly good at it, but because I seemed particularly sparkly talking about it. <laughs> I get very excited about it. <laughs> yeah. So it was a thing that, yeah, lit you up. It made you sparkle. I'm just thinking of that line in Sex Ed. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> that my my professor saw me talking about medicine and he was like, Makes you that sparkle. boy doesn't make you sparkle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. That's fantastic. (laughs) What kind of dialogues do you think there need, there should be, or should be happening between theatre studies and gender studies or semiotics that you aren't seeing happening already or that you want to try and bring about through your work? Yeah, this is something that I come across reading the Complete Works anthologies a lot. Um, For reference, the Complete Works anthologies are published by big-name publishers and edited by the equivalent of celebrity scholars in Shakespeare studies, and it's all of Shakespeare's plays put together, and they become the seminal texts for any undergraduate all the way through professional academic studying Shakespeare. And I was looking through one of the plays the other day, and I noticed that the editor had cut all of the stage directions that give any sort of indication of how the play should be performed Mm. or what it would look like. Why do you think they did that? I think it's because these volumes are designed for just English classes and just Mm. for literature angles. So I was thinking about it and I realized that when I was performing Shakespeare at any level, I never noticed anyone reading out of one of the complete works, which is such a shame because they have such good, rich footnotes. Mm. The most important thing that English literature texts and performance texts can do is just talk to each other um, and to keep each other in mind, particularly because they enrich each other. Do you think that from what you're saying it sounds like they've been kind of cut so that they're solely objects of study and all we have is this kind of practical metric exam focused vision of what these texts are meant to be they're not meant to be performed and seen they're meant to be read and consumed and we we lose a lot mm-hmm. that way um do, why is it important that we look at these these texts as objects of performance as things that are meant to be seen and felt like well, what do we gain from that in your opinion mm-hmm. well i think that it's the main difference between a, a play and uh, a not play. <laughs> um, oh, that's a good one. I should have read these in advance. The, the purpose of a play is to be seen. Yep. And on one hand, you could argue, you know, the death of the author, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, why bother with that when we know mm. that these are plays? Um, it, and studying the play as just a literary text is like eating 
just the appetizer of a meal. And why would you do that? Why would you do that? No, it's exactly. like a lunch portion. Exactly. You've got so much more on offer. No, I completely agree. I'm hungry. <laughs> I want a main course. <laughs> um, is that what you guys call appetizers? I never know the difference. So the appetizer and then the, the, the main course is like the entree. Oh, yes. Mains. So Starters and mains. Appetizers and... And entrees. So confusing. Code switching. Uh, obviously in French, entrees is starter, so it's just a oh, whoa. weird... Oh, true. Yeah, mind blown. I was really struck when I was reading your bio um, by the use of the word redressing. Because um, for me, I think that brings about connotations of redressing both as an act of restoring justice and an idea of transforming in disguise. Mm. Um, and it made me think that in the light of mo- in the light of movements like Time's Up and Me Too... To what extent are the performances that you study both a form of restorative justice and kind of a form of a literal way of disguising? And why is it important that we make a shift in our addressments to all female female casts? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, So the reason that I I called the project Redressing Rape is, you know, the sort of punny use of the word first in the Mm cross-casting and cross-casting, hmm. <laughs> a little local <laughs> accent coming out there, and the cross-dressing, mm. but as you said, also this restorative justice idea. But one of the more interesting things that I've read in like a, a dramaturgical note in the program for Richard II at The Globe recently, which was all women of color, of course, people are going to ask why they've chosen to do this. Mm. And the answer that they gave in the program basically amounted to because we felt like it and I felt like that was so powerful Mm. and I think that part of the restorative justice of Me Too and Time's Up is just taking up that space and doing something because you feel like it and making an artistic choice because you worked hard and you think you deserve it and the fact that these women casts shouldn't feel the need to constantly justify their existence um, I think that that's so, so important. So that's why I've chosen that word. The first one that I found was actually the through the director of Philida Lloyd. Right. Whom you mentioned. And that was actually more incidental than anything. So I went to see The Taming of the Shrew at Shakespeare mm-hmm. in the Park in 2016. And she had on an all-women taming, mm. which I just said. <laughs> and what I didn't know at the time was that it was kind of a, a reiteration, a revival of a production she had done in 2003. Um And later when I went back to view that production, I noticed it was pretty much all white women. And in the iteration in 2016, Catherine was played by a woman of color, which was clearly intentional and very thoughtfully done. And the production was so galvanizing. And I came out of it and the male theater friend that I went with was like, that was so funny. I have so many ideas for how I would want to do this. Like, it's so witty and Catherine's so funny. And I was traumatized. Like, I couldn't. I couldn't even express like what had been awakened and the other woman I was with felt the same. I was sort of seeing a woman coded body enacting really explicit sexual violence on another woman to this sort of clowny farcical laugh track is so horrifying and I think speaks so vividly to experiences that we all have. Um, And prior to seeing that play I'd kind of written off Taming of the Shrew as like uh, there's no point in revising it because Mm. you can't fix it you can't Mm. change that it exists Mm. and this was the first play that I saw the first production of it that I I felt 
like I would see again and like I would recommend to other people. So I started following Phil Deloitte and I found that she had directed a series of all-women productions at the Donmar Warehouse in London that later transferred to Brooklyn, which I think is what you mentioned. Okay. Um, and I saw one of the, I caught the tail end of the series. I saw The Tempest. Um, so I wrote my master's dissertation on that series. And then coming here, I started with that, that trilogy, the Donmar trilogy as my entry point. But since then, I've tried to focus on more women of color directors and a sort of escape the like London stranglehold mm. on contemporary Shakespeare. But it's difficult. It's interesting. I had um, Katie Hawthorne, who you know, <laughs> um, as a guest on this podcast. And one of the things we were talking about and thinking about is how city cultures themselves shape, you know, the culture of the play. Oh, she's and- so smart. Oh, she is. <laughs> Hi, Katie. Um, but also, I guess, practically speaking, the availability of, mm-hmm. you know, women and women of colour and performers who can be cast. Um, and does any of your work um, intersect with or look at actors or productions in Edinburgh and Scotland? Or is it just US? I mean, like, how have you broken out of the London stronghold? Mm-hmm. I have incidentally not found any <laughs> productions in Edinburgh there was for a while I think a trend that I found is that I'll do like a broad Google search and find a like a cookie crumb trail mm. about a local regional women's group doing Shakespeare and most of the time they've shut down by the time I find them so these groups usually last two to four years before going under or moving on to other things it's just I saw this again so this thing on um, a meme on Instagram recently about Phoebe Waller-Bridge and all, you know, all the awards mm. she got for Fleabag and everything. It's like, congratulations, you have finally been able to pay off the down payment for the Fringe venue like all those years back. <laughs> and it's, it's just maddening that in the light, you know, we, we're seeing so many examples of, of what happens when we fund these productions. And we were talking about Amelia at the Globe. Amelia um, Six. Yeah. And I think, pay women. <laughs> pay. <laughs> Basically, my thesis statement was pay women. It's actually. Oh, I wish it were. This is summary. Hey, women, not that woke. <laughs> not that cool. We've talked about this kind of informally, but mm. I wanted to bring it um, bring it up again. Um, this idea of performance moving on beyond the realms of theatre, the performance of gender becoming something that we consume quite openly and readily in popular culture. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, things like RuPaul's Drag Race Mm -hmm. Um, and the link between that performance and queer culture. And one thing I wanted to ask you about is this idea of appropriation, appropriation or appropriating the political history of drag culture Mm -hmm. as an act of social commentary and one of activism. And whether shows like RuPaul's Drag Race silence any kind of forms of resistance to hegemonic gender binaries um, that characterise the origins of radical drag. That's a quote from Caroline Hodges. Mm. Um, I think I wanted to ask you a bit, what do you think about that? What's the line between appropriation and performance and con- you know, becoming aware through our consumption and maybe ignoring the political struggles that underline um, the media that we consume? That's such a good question, which I did think about it in advance. <laughs> um, I think that the most important distinction to draw is between intent and impact. Mm. So, you know, our most optimistic impulse is to assume that RuPaul's Drag Race is intended to create 
a fostering culture for all types of drag and for all queer people. But what happens when we see who gets cast on Drag Race and who wins Drag Race year after year, that culture necessitates a silencing of certain types of drag and certain types of queerness, even if that's not the intent. So what that means is that, you know, the intent is a moot point. And what happens is that, you know, trans women and drag kings in particular and non-binary performers aren't able to access that type of mainstream ability. Um, A lot of sort of horror drag queens are, it's a great way to enter this conversation um, as an observer. Horror drag queens often say that it's not just an ideological thing, it's an income thing. Mm. I want to do this for my job just as badly as, you know, Aquaria, but because I'll never be cast on Drag Race, like, I I just can't do that. Like, I, I... and of course, like, there's a lot to be said about the way that getting cast on Drag Race isn't a career bet for everyone because they cast like 14 girls a year. Mm-hmm. But the fact that that's now a mainstream thing that people want to see is drag queens get cast in commercials. Mm-hmm. They get cast in Super Bowl commercials. They go on international tours. But those tours and those types of audiences reward a very, very specific style of drag. And a lot of the time that drag is what Hodges will reference as sort of appropriating and and, um, desecrating femininity in kind of a a dangerous way. Why do you think it's dangerous? Well, that that brings up a lot. Um, Lindsay Ellis talks about appropriation as a culturally neutral term but when appropriation becomes dangerous is when it punches down um and so the type of drag that for example RuPaul's Drag Race will occasionally champion is the type of drag that punches down not always with you know Evie Oddly winning and with Peppermint making it to the finals um we are starting to see non- cis, white, skinny queens be championed on Drag Race. I saw a really, really funny tweet about All-Stars, mm, All-Stars 4, um, when there was a tie between Monet Exchange and Trinity Taylor. And at the start of the season, when there were only two white queens in the lineup, people were like, this is so exciting. Um, we've never seen a season like this before because, of course, drag is originated and in many ways belongs to to black trans women and so people were pretty hopeful but i saw a really funny tweet that said rupaul colon i've only got two white queens on this season but you can bet i'm gonna find a way to crown one of them thing kind of that, the violence of absence and erasure that, that loops back around right and it's not that all cis male drag queens hate women but that culture capitalizes on a systematic exclusion 
of trans women and lesbians from the gay community in the 80s and 90s in New York that you can forget but you can't erase mm. and we still feel those aftershocks today and it still yep. happens today yep yep even in and again coming coming back to your previous point even in safe spaces I'm using air quotes that our listeners can't see <laughs> safe spaces like performance spaces um theaters venues it circles back to what you were saying about funding mm. you know unfortunately things cost money even things that we don't think should cost money Do. still cost money, which is upsetting. Um, and the, I think it can still, all of these things can coexist because shows like RuPaul's Drag Race are reductionist in ways that can become violent and erasive, erasing, erasive, but not necessarily. And, with the advent of shows like Dragula, with the sort of resurgence, continuation of the ball scene internationally, I think that there are communities out there that are working really, really hard to be inclusive and to be mindful mm. and to remind participants and observers that drag comes from trans women of color. You know, as far back as the 1800s, early 1920s, um, that when we watch RuPaul's Drag Race and we see a queen referencing voguing or using lingo from Paris is burning, that we have trans women of color to thank for that. Yeah. And that we have a responsibility to educate ourselves on the origins of that. Mm -hmm. There was a thing that, um, that struck me about, again, about your description of the shrew and your cookie trail cookie crumbs, sorry, trails to these regional troops of women, the extent to which the emotional burden of reliving sexual trauma, of staging sexual trauma, of seeking the funds to try and spread awareness and put a stop to indespicable acts of violence, um, again, comes back onto the shoulders of the very people who've experienced it and who should be being lifted up, but of having mm -hmm. to find ways to claw and fund themselves to a place where they are just heard and believed. Mm -hmm. And how do we... How do we redress that? This brings me back to... We mentioned sex ed. Uh -huh. And there's that scene where, after the girl's assaulted on the bus, her friends find out, and even though they all kind of hate each other, they meet her in the morning and take the bus with her. I cried my eyes out. Oh my, I mm, wept. I can't even think about it too hard yep, right no. now. I'm going to start again. But that idea is so powerful yeah. um, that it didn't take a huge amount of money or a huge press intervention um, for these women to make a difference to one woman. And the power of a show like Shrew coming to Shakespeare in the Park was that male theater critics in New York were forced to confront that. Um, and, you know, women's theater, quote unquote, mm. didn't exist on just the fringes anymore. That the, the director of the public felt that it was a viable money-making expenditure to, to put an all-women cast up for one of two summer slots at Shakespeare in the Park, which, to be fair, is free. Mm. But that even... Even that affects 
so much about who the public theater is for, mm-hmm. you know, who donates to the public, who are who is a patron of the public. And since then, they've made a lot of efforts to make the public more inclusive, to more reflective of New York's community. Now, whether that's performative or genuine is always up for debate. Mm-hmm. You know, only Oscar Eustace himself knows. <laughs> but I think that we can point back to shows like True, you know, four years ago now, and and identify a a noticeable shift in who Shakespeare in the Park is for. One of the questions that we talked at talked about with Katie was this idea of online spaces and theatre performance um, and kind of a shift towards technologies um, and new modes of kind of streaming and accessing performance and I'm just wondering if this is something that you've witnessed um, through the shows you've been working on and with the troops you've been working with. Yeah so I actually viewed um, the entire Donmar trilogy online oh, wow. for my thesis. Um, it's not available anymore but for about three months it was up online on um, the BBC mm-hmm. for free, um, and they advertised it. And so making it available is one thing, but the idea that huge online platforms are beginning to advertise, um, you know, the Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet yeah. alongside Phil Lloyd's All Women, Julius Caesar set in a prison, starring Harriet Walter, is a huge step. Mm. But it also harkens back to you know who these things are for and something kind of depressing that I found in my survey of all of these productions is that the most successful ones meaning the ones put on by big name theater companies the ones that get huge reviews and get recorded and broadcast almost always if not always star a famous white woman who has already had a career um, and then very often you know, like in Taming of the Shrew, in the Donmar trilogy, those actresses are supported by other women of color who are less famous. Um, and then those white actresses who star go on to write books about it or, you know, win Oscars for other things or have won Oscars for other things, whatever the case may be. But what I found is that productions who are doing a thing with people of color, with all women, feel the need and are in many cases forced to include a marketing hook. Mm. Like Harriet Walter, like Janet McTeer. Um, It makes me think about how this crazy musical in New York called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 had to hire like Josh Groban to be in it um, to get people to come to it, which worked. It was incredibly popular. <laughs> that was me raising my eyebrows in the back. <laughs> it, he was he was good. Okay, like good question mark. Good. He was good. <laughs> but if you're thinking about like the Donmar, the National Theater, and the Globe, these three houses figure themselves as quite progressive, mm-hmm. and so any erasure of poor people of women of color of queer people that is necessary for them to be seen they write off as a necessary expenditure 
because they're woke. So what can they can't like they're doing their best. Mm-hmm. Whereas in New York, it's like, oh well, no one's gonna come see this if you don't hire Josh Groban. So you might as well suck it up. <laughs> I love the accent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell I used to act? <laughs> What's the point of studying all of that if it doesn't reach more than me, my two supervisors, and whoever's on my Viva panel? Um, So I think moving forward, the way that at least we as academics can support theater is by doing the research to support it, which I know sounds really simple, but it's not as common right now. No. Um, And, you know, I'm... I really live in a Twitter bubble, and right now the London theater Twitterverse is constantly struggling to get funding, to be heard, to be published, um, because there is an unbelievable amount of resistance in both journalism and academia to publish writers writing about new stuff. Mm. Students is like, well, then you should have gotten funding. Like, what were you thinking? Um, yeah. I mean, it again, it, and that disproportionately falls on the shoulders of women or non-binary oh. people, of queer people, of people of colour, of people from working class, mm-hmm. immigrant, asylum seeker, refugee backgrounds. And it's, it is something that we need to urgently redress to mm-hmm. use, yeah. <laughs> to use your PhD terminology. <laughs> huge amounts of job insecurity in yeah. theatre and academia that yeah. sort of prohibit people from unstable financial backgrounds from entering at all yep yep it's just another layer of a glass ceiling mm-hmm. that we all know is there um speaking of academic institutions you sort of led me quite nicely into my last question <laughs> and I promise it's the last one this time um it's a question we ask all of our interviewees at the end um if you could go back in time and talk to first year PhD Rachel or pre-first year Rachel, mm. PhD Rachel who was maybe kind of in medicine but thinking that she just loved mm-hmm. theatre and it was the boy that made her sparkle. <laughs> what advice would you give her? Ooh, besides start your Zotero now. <laughs> oh God, yeah, do, do um, it. Do it. <laughs> I would tell her that she belongs here. Oh God, you're me cry. I know, me too. So I, I was actually made to cry in my first supervision. Um, and I'm very, I, this is, I'm very close with the supervisor now, but that idea really wormed its way into my brain for the first two years I was here, that I didn't belong here, that I wasn't good enough, and that nothing that I did while I was here was going to make me good enough. I felt like it was too late for me to be good. I felt like I had ruined my life, and I started immediately looking at medical school applications again. So if I could tell myself anything, it would be to take a breath and remember that you chose this for a reason and you chose it because you can do it. If you, you know, because you're a woman of color, you're never going to jump into something that you're not 3000% qualified for. Like Rachel, come on. You're, why would you do this if you didn't think that you could finish it? Yeah. And so I wish that there were a way to help women earlier in their PhD careers remember that strength and that conviction that this is something that is as good as done because you're doing it now. 
Rachel, thank you so, so much for coming in to talk to me and for that beautiful answer. Thank you for your beautiful questions. <laughs> thank you.